And if you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, the last clause is, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so this pastor wanted me to preach on the resurrection of the dead. So that's what I did. I went to the church and I preached on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, not all of it, just a portion of it, and I preached on the resurrection of the dead. And I thought it was pretty good. But apparently there were some people within the church who didn't think it was that good. And they made known to me that they didn't appreciate 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and what was said. They came up to me and said, you know, we, we really don't agree with what you said. And what was that? Well, that there's a resurrection of the dead. Now, this is a Christian church. So you can imagine I was a bit surprised at about, well, I would say it was about 50-50. Some loved it. The other half, not so much. They couldn't get behind or couldn't, they couldn't understand the concept that there would be a resurrection of the dead. They believed and understood that Jesus was raised from the dead. That wasn't the issue that the people, at least the ones who came up to me, their issue wasn't, well, we don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. That they believed. They had a problem with the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe that Christians would be raised from the dead. That was the problem. And I said to myself, how in the world can you believe that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, but you don't believe that we will be raised from the dead? And so, of course, I was never invited back after that. And I, the pastor sent me an email saying, I hope you were inspired and all that, but I was, I was never going to be invited back after that. And I was just so amazed at how many people within this particular church who claimed to be Christians denied that there was a resurrection of the dead. It surprised me. I was amazed by it. Not the world, those who claimed to be Christians who worshiped the Lord on Sunday did not believe or think that there was going to be a resurrection of the dead. And that experience kind of just made me think a little bit and caused me to hesitate uh, whenever I talk about the resurrection of the dead because you never know. You may be surprised at people who you may think believe in the resurrection of the dead, and they may not. How many, how many times have you ever asked a person pointedly, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? Did you ever ask people that question? I remember one Easter Sunday, it was the time when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out. Remember when that movie came out? And it was a, it was, everyone was talking about it. Well, I just was a new believer at the time, and I was at Easter, I was at my aunt's house celebrating Easter Sunday dinner. Well, yeah, I guess here it would be lunch. I don't know, it's, it's different here, so <laughs> I got to be careful how I use my, lang my words here. I'll say it was lunchtime, okay? It was around noontime. I was over at my aunt's house, and people knew I was going to church or started going back to church. And they wanted to know what I thought about the movie. I said, I hadn't seen the movie yet, so I don't know, I don't know what to say about the, the movie, The Passion of the Christ. But I don't know how we started talking about the subject of the resurrection, but something asked me, or something inside of me told me to ask them if they believed in the resurrection. And so there must have been about 10 or 15 of us sitting at the table, and I asked every single person, do you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus? 
or I said, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, is what I said. Every single person on that table said no, except for two people. And the, many of them went to church. All of them said no, except for two people. And I said to myself, only two people believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And as we were talking, I began to realize that the two people who did believe in the resurrection thought that the resurrection was spiritual, not bodily. And I was floored by it. And it made me realize that there's a lot of people out there, even within the church, who don't necessarily believe in the resurrection of the dead. I was reminded of those experiences when I was reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for it is the same issue the Apostle Paul needs to address in his letter to the church at Corinth. We're going to see that he's going to address this issue with them, for they believed in a bodily resurrection of Jesus, but they were starting to question the reality that there was a resurrection of the dead. And Paul is going to have to address this issue with the Corinthian believers. Now, before we get into the passage and then into the text, we need to understand what the Corinthians were themselves were thinking and believing. Why would the Corinthians at that time deny that there was the resurrection of the dead? Why would they do that? Well, they were in Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. And in that time period, there was Greek philosophy was prevalent. And the Greeks believed that there was life after death. They didn't think life was over when someone died. They understood that they believed that there was life after death. They just denied that that existence included a body. So that was, that was Corinth. And then you have a church community of believers who are in that city and may have been impacted by the culture in which they lived, by this Greek philosophy, the immortality of the soul. When a person dies, they're, they're separated from their body and they will continue on in eternity in this bodiless, disembodied existence. That was Greek philosophy. It was prevalent in that culture. And so there were some people who apparently within the Christian church at Corinth started to believe that they uh, were going to, when they died, that they would live in a disembodied existence. They would not have a body when they died. They believed that the body may not necessarily have been evil, though there were people who did believe that. There were people called the Gnostics. These were individuals who thought that the body was evil, and so to live in a body would be repugnant and evil, and God would never dwell in a body. So Jesus could not have lived in a body because the body was evil, and if Jesus was God, he wouldn't dwell in a body. That would be contradictory. And those people who thought that Jesus appeared to live in a body but actually didn't, those were called docetists. comes from the Greek word dokane, which means to think or it seems or to appear. People think that Jesus appeared in a body, but he really didn't. It seems that he had a body, but he really didn't. There were people who thought that. But the individuals in Corinth, were, remember, these were individuals who put a lot of emphasis on the spiritual gifts. They really put an emphasis on spirituality. This was the church that wanted to... Um, expressed their spirituality, and a sign of their spirituality was the gift of speaking in tongues. 
okay? And so these people started taking the term resurrection and redefining it, not as someone who was raised from the dead, but they would understand resurrection as a spiritual resurrection. That is, when someone became a believer in Jesus Christ, you received the Holy Spirit. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, then you have become everything that God wants you to be. There would be no future promises. This is called, this is a, a theological term. I'm going to explain what it means. I don't often do this. This was called realized eschatology. What does that mean? It means that when the Holy Spirit came, these individuals believed that the future promises of God were now realized in them in the present, and therefore there was no more future promises of God. So when they died, they would just simply shed their body and live in a bodiless existence. It's a referral to uh, a spiritual resurrection. After all, the scripture does say, if any man is in Christ, he's a what? New creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Well, then if I am now a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm a new creation, right? I am everything that God wants me to be now. I am a spiritual person, and I'm going to shed this, this body once and for all, this body that is beneath me. That's what they were thinking. This was evident in, in Paul's letter to 2 Timothy 2, 16 to 18. Paul says this to Timothy. He says, But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. When Paul writes this to Timothy, he's not saying that He's not saying that when they say that the resurrection is already passed, they're not saying that the resurrection of the dead, people rising out of their tombs, happened at some point in the past. That's not what, that's not what people thought. When the resurrection happened at some point in the past, this is a spiritual resurrection. These are people who thought that I have been resurrected from the dead because now I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. So the term resurrection wasn't always understood as being raised from the dead. It was often understood spiritually, a spiritual resurrection. So the people that Paul is writing to are people who think that they don't need to be, uh, that there will be no bodily existence after death. They believe that Jesus was raised, as we will see. The Corinthian believers will believe that Jesus was raised, but they will deny that, that there is a resurrection of the dead, just like the people that I was preaching to. And Paul is going to say, no, that's not the case. And so he's going to make an argument for the resurrection of the dead. How does he do that? He does so, number one, he argues for the resurrection of the dead by appealing to the common ground of all Christian preaching, which is what? That Jesus was raised from the dead. Verses 1 to 11, he says this, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, Moreover, brethren, I declare, or that is, I make known to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are being saved, if you hold fast that word which, which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, that is, without due consideration, 
or in a haphazard manner or thoughtlessly. She says, I believed and I preached the gospel to you when I was with you. And you believed the gospel when I preached to you. And now he's going to explain the content of the gospel. This is what I was preaching to you when I was with you. Verse 3, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. That there, that statement is a technical language for transmission of religious instruction. What Paul is saying by saying that sentence, what he is saying here is that the essential matters go back to the very beginning of things. What I'm about to share with you is what I received. It was passed on to me, and now I'm taking it, I'm going to give it to you. And this is of prime importance, he says, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen, that is, he appeared, he became visible by Peter, and then he was seen by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen, made visible by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time, or untimely born, or abnormally born. What Paul is doing here is he's going to lay the foundation for an argument that he's going to make to them. And he's saying, I, when I was with you, I preached the gospel to you. And when I shared the news that Jesus died and rose again according to the scriptures, when he was buried, and when he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, you believe that. Okay? He's not out here to try to show that Jesus was raised from the dead, although you can do this with this passage. What he's trying to do is lay the foundation for an argument that he's going to make later. And he says, all of the individuals that preach the gospel, the gospel that I preach to you, the same individuals preach the same message that I preach. Peter did it. The 12 do it. All the apostles do it. James, the brother of Jesus, preaches the same gospel I do. And lastly, I preach the gospel as well. We all preach the same message, okay? And then he says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. That is, I'm an apostle, and his grace toward me was not in vain or fruitless, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet it wasn't I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. What he's doing here is this. What did I preach to you? I preached to you that Jesus died, rose again. That's what we preached. And you believed it. Okay? It wasn't just my message. Everybody was preaching that message. All those who saw Jesus rise from the grave visible, they preached the same message as I am. So the message is consistent, okay? And what he's going to say is, is this. If you say that there is no resurrection of the dead, then you are out of step with the earliest traditional teaching of the apostles, 
So you cannot be apostolic and say that Jesus Christ was not raised or that there's no resurrection of the dead. When you hear people say there is no resurrection of the dead, you can point them to the 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and say, well, yeah, but Paul says the earliest teaching of the gospel is centered on the resurrection of the dead. And to hold that view would be going against the tradition of the earliest church who preached the gospel that Jesus was raised from the dead and therefore there is a resurrection of the dead. That's what he's saying. To say that there is no resurrection of the dead flies in the face of the earliest Christian apostolic teaching and there's no continuity with it. And that's what he wants to show is that everything that I've done this point in time has been preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, it's interesting that when he lists all of the individuals who preach the gospel, he names Peter, he names, he doesn't name all the apostles, but he says all the apostles preach the same message, the 12 preach the same message, James But then he says that there's 500 people who saw Jesus at one time. 500, more than 500 people saw Jesus on one occasion. Why does he put that in there? What is that saying to us? Why does Paul put that in there? Well, he put that in there because, first of all, in in their context, they could go to the individuals who saw Jesus and, and say, well, did you actually see him? We can't do that. But why, what is it there, and and, and what would be the significance of it? I remember when I was back in high school, me and my friends would always go to a place called the Southwick Shooting Range. It was a place where you would go and just kind of hang out with your friends. It was something to do on a Friday and Saturday night. So we would hang out there on a Friday and Saturday night, 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night, something to do. In order to get into the Southwick Shooting Range, you had to drive through the woods, and there was no lights there. And it was, I don't know how, it seemed like a, like a half a mile. It wasn't that long, but it seemed like it took forever to get to the street, to, the sh- to get into the Southwick shooting range. You had to drive through a very narrow dirt road, which seemed to have a lot of potholes in it. And it was pitch black. And I remember one night, there must have been four or five of us were in a Jeep, and the guy driving was driving very slow. And all of a sudden something comes out of the woods, maybe 20 yards in front of us. It was a person. And the person had a a white sheet over them. And they walked out of the woods, and they had their hands out like this. It appeared to be like that. And they were doing this. The guy was walking. He walked like this across the street like this. Yeah. And we looked at each other like, what in the world Right? Who would be out there in the middle of the dark, in the middle of the woods, at that time of night with no lights, with a sheet over their head? I don't know, but it, it scared all of us. Right? It did. We, and the guy who was driving the Jeep was driving a little faster than he was prior to that, after that. It was a bumpier ride. Okay? So as we go out there, we finally come to the place where all the people were. There must have been 40 of them. And the guy who was driving goes up to the people that we were, you know, all our friends. He says, you won't believe this. We were driving down this dirt road and some, we don't know what it was, came out with a white sheet on their head and walked across the street like this. 
And the people who heard him were laughing like, yeah, come on. You, gotta, you must have saw something that wasn't what you thought it was. It must have been a figment of your imagination, right? And then the rest of us came and says, no, no, we saw the same thing he did. And it's true. The guy came out of the woods, walked like, you know, with his hands outstretched with a sheet over his head. And you know what they did? They believed it. They no longer used the argument that it was, so, it was the figment of someone's imagination because they understood that the likelihood of, of multiple people seeing the same thing and then attributing it to an, a hallucination or the figment of one's imagination would become highly improbable. The fact that there is 500 people witnessing Jesus will argue against anybody who says that what they saw was a figment of their imagination or they were hallucinating, right? That's what it does. When someone says, I saw Jesus' actual physical body after he was raised from the dead, and someone disputes that and says, nah, you saw, you saw a hallucination. You didn't see what you thought you saw. One person doing that, you could attribute someone maybe hallucinating something in their mind. Maybe they saw something they didn't. But when you have 500 people saying the same thing, it's much harder to suggest and say, well, they all were hallucinating or they were all seeing a figment of their imagination and it happened to be the same thing. There's no way. The fact that that's in there shows and argues and mitigates any argument to suggest that what people saw was a hallucination or a figment of one's imagination. That's what that passage does. It undermines that argument. Okay? So here we see the Apostle Paul is making clear that... Uh, he argues for the resurrection of the dead on the basis that it was a common testimony of all of the early leaders in the church. To, to, to deviate from that means you're not, you're deviating from orthodoxy, you're deviating from the, the apostolic witness. Okay? Number two, in arguing for the resurrection of the dead, Paul now gives us the logical consequences of denying the reality of the resurrection of the dead. This is what's going to happen. Paul says, okay, you don't want to believe in the resurrection of the dead? Fine, I'll go there with you. I'll take you at your word. Let's work that out as we think about this. You say there's no resurrection of the dead? What's the outcome of that in our, in our thinking if we come to that conclusion? He says, now if Christ is preached by everyone that he's been raised from among the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? How can you do that? And he says in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then number one, Christ is not risen. That's the first step, number one. If there's no resurrection of the dead, he comes to the conclusion that Christ is not risen. He's saying you can't hold at the same time, we believe that Jesus was raised, but we don't believe that the resurrection of the dead will happen. He, Paul is saying that can't happen. He puts the two together. So you can either believe that Jesus was raised and believers will be raised, or you're saying that there was, Jesus was not raised and believers won't be raised. But you cannot say Jesus was raised, therefore believers will not be raised. He doesn't do that. He says, if the universal principle that the dead cannot be raised is possible, then an individual instance of it is not possible either. That's what he's arguing for. Okay? So he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And then he says in verse 14, if Christ is not risen, 
then what? Two things happen. Our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. He calls to mind the preaching that he gave to them while he was there. And he says, if Christ has not been raised and the substance of our preaching was that he was raised from the dead, then our faith is empty. In other words, it's fruitless and pointless without any basis. And he says, so is your faith fruitless and pointless without any basis, right? That's his thinking. Though no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, then our preaching is empty, your faith is empty. Now, as he thinks about this even more, he goes on to say in verse 15, yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he has raised Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. In other words, he's saying we're liars. He says, as, as we think about this, if we say that there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. Not only that, and with regards to our preaching, we're making, we're lying, we're giving false witness about God. Okay? The ninth commandment is what? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That was a violation of the ninth commandment. Now, if bearing false witness against your neighbor is sinful, well, how much more is bearing false witness of God? Because he's saying, we're claiming God raised Jesus from the dead and that there's a resurrection. But you're saying that didn't happen. And if he didn't do it, then we're accusing God of doing something he didn't do. Bearing false witness. But if God did raise Jesus from the dead, then the only way one can accurately testify about God and avoid testifying falsely is to preach about the resurrection. Right? If God raised Jesus from the dead, the only way to avoid testifying falsely of God is to preach the resurrection. That's the only way. Next, he says, if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Your faith is futile. How, why is your faith futile? Why would our faith be futile? And he says, you're, you're still dead in your sins. Well, it's because Paul sees the resurrection as an act of the Father. Okay? He raised his son from the dead. And if God sent his son to die for you and for me for our sins, and he's still in the grave, what does that mean? Our sins remain. The resurrection is a validation that God's sacrifice on our behalf was valid. But if Jesus is not raised, it means that God did not accept the Son and his sacrifice on our behalf, which means our sin's still there. So we're in a perilous condition. That's what he's saying. And he says, not only does your faith Futile is not only is faith futile for those who are alive, faith is futile for those who have died. For he says in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. In other words, if we have believed in Christ's resurrection as giving us hope for the future, when there is no hope for the future, then we are truly to be pitied. That is most deserving of compassion and sympathy. Why? Why? Because the gospel we have been preaching has no substance to it. 
It's pointless and it bears no fruit. Faith is ineffective. Faith in Jesus is fruitless and pointless. The witnesses of the resurrection are liars, bearing false witness of God. Sin retains its destructive and damaging control in our lives, and believers who died in Christ are irretrievably lost. That's what happens when you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So it's not just simply we don't believe in the bodily resurrection and that's it. Paul says there's a logical, there's a domino effect of what happens when you deny the central core of the Christian faith. One commentator I read says this. He says, the whole argument of this paragraph are especially troublesome to those within the Christian faith who have denied Christ's resurrection and thus ours as well. There seems to be little hope of getting around Paul's argument that to deny Christ's resurrection is tantamount to a denial of Christian existence altogether. Yet many do so to make the faith more palatable to the modern man. But that will scarcely do. What modernity accepts in its place is no longer the Christian faith, which predicates divine forgiveness through Christ's death on his resurrection. Nothing else is the Christian faith. And those who reject the actuality of the resurrection of Christ need to face the consequences of such rejection, that they are bearing false witness against the very God they claim to believe in. Like the Corinthians, they will have believed in vain since the faith is finally predicated on whether or not Paul is right, especially on this issue. It is arrogance of the highest order to think one exists in some continuity with the historic Christian faith when this absolute center core of that faith, which is the resurrection of the dead and thus our resurrection, is brushed aside in the guise of modernity. The rejection of the resurrection of the dead is a relinquishing of the Christian faith as it has been preserved for us in the New Testament. And yet there, is, there are many who come to church on a Sunday morning who deny that there will be a resurrection. And you'd be surprised if you were to ask people, do you believe in the resurrection? You may get a response that would be quite shocking because there are many who come to worship the Lord and deny that that's the case. And in so doing, without even recognizing, without even realizing it, without even thinking about it, they have undermined the very faith on which they stand. It's like climbing a tree, sitting on a branch, and then sawing off the branch on which you sit. You take out the bottom out, you take the bottom out from underneath you. That's what disbelieving in the resurrection of the dead does. But it's true, it happens. It is essential to our faith that when we leave this world, we will be raised bodily. And Paul has only started his argument in this chapter, but we only have time for what we've done this morning. But that should not deter us from proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ that he was raised from the dead. It is even more reason to proclaim and make certain what we believe when we talk about the resurrection of the dead. We believe in the bodily resurrection. These bodies in which we live today are going to be raised. They will be raised. And that's the hope that we have. We're not going to live in just some bodiless, disembodied existence. As Jesus was raised from the grave, 
our broken bodies will be raised as well. And that's the hope. We will be completely redeemed spiritually and physically. And that's the hope that we have. During the earthly days of Sam Boyle's ministry in Japan, he hired a translator to assist him in preaching. The only translator Boyle could find was a Japanese man teaching English in a nearby junior high school. The teacher was not a Christian, but agreed to translate Boyle's sermons. The relationship worked well through the first few sermons, but hit a snag when the missionary preached on the resurrection. He proclaimed, and on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. The translator looked at Boyle and said, they're never going to believe this. May we never assume the position of this translator, deciding who will and who will not believe the gospel. God's invitation to hear the good news extends to everyone, regardless of how we think they will respond. And some may not respond in kind, but that should not deter us from proclaiming God's word as it has always been preached, even from the very beginning, by the apostolic tradition that Paul gives to us in 1 Corinthians 15, 111. We will be raised to new life, even in our bodies. We thank God for that, just as Jesus was raised. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word and for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Uh, Lord, we do know that there are people in this world, maybe we all have family members and friends, if we were to ask them pointedly if they believe in a bodily resurrection, they may say no. They may not have really given it much thought. Lord, we just pray that your spirit would be at work in our friends and our family members, the people who are around us who don't know you and who deny that there is a resurrection of the dead. Lord, we just ask that your spirit would be at work in their lives, that you would help them to see the truth, the truth of the gospel, that there is life after death, and that life includes a bodily existence. You have redeemed the whole man, not just their spirit and soul, their mind, but the body as well. You care for the body. You created the body. It's not evil. It is good. For you created it and saw everything that you created was good. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would give us boldness to proclaim your word. That when we speak of resurrection, we are speaking of a bodily existence. And help us to explain that to those who may not believe. More importantly, may we live a life in such a way that people will know that when we do talk about the resurrection, that it's true, that we do live a resurrection life. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would empower us by your spirit, that we would live that life. So that when we do speak about the resurrection, that they will see that it is true. And may you be glorified and praised for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.